What's going on? My name's Hartzell. Happy Tuesday. So today, as we take back America, myself and Professor Harvey K, we get into part two of Lincoln's lessons. We're taking a look at Abraham Lincoln. I hear he's pretty important. And we're working our way up to the Gettysburg Address. Part one, we get some context on Lincoln. We work our way to D.C. And you can check all that out last Thursday. What was that? September 30th. Check your KC Morning Show feeds. But right now, let's get into part two. Oanis Abe is ready for Inauguration Day. And with that, we take back America. My name's Hartzell. Intro man, hit that button. Ah, I guess that's me. On January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. He's now president. His message to Congress, July 4th, 1861. The war has begun. This is essentially a people's contest. On the side of the Union, it is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. Yielding to partial and temporary departures from necessity, this is the leading object of the government for whose existence we contend. And then, of course, it's in the course of this year that he's already going to start to imagine the possibility of bringing an end to slavery. And then in the course of the following year, 1862, he will begin to draft the idea and the words for an Emancipation Proclamation. Now, this is the crucial thing. Lincoln believed that the Constitution did not give him the authority to bring an end to slavery. However, in the face of a civil war, of secession, his powers as commander-in-chief, the military law, would afford him the opportunity to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. And we should understand that when he signs the Emancipation Proclamation, an initial one, and then there's the primary one of January 1st, 1863, that this declares an end to slavery in the states that had seceded. So states like Maryland, and Missouri and Kentucky were not included in the Emancipation Proclamation for they had not seceded. Lincoln would love to have included them, but what he feared was if he moved too quickly, that he would drive those states into the hands of the Confederacy. Let's have a look now at another really important speech of 1861, the December 1861 speech, the annual message to Congress. These are the speeches now usually given in January, early February. In those days, it was given in December and not necessarily offered in person, quite often in the form of a letter sent to Congress to be read aloud into the record. You want to handle this one? I would love to. Go right ahead. Labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital is only the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. Labor is a superior of capital and deserves much the higher consideration. This is interesting. There are those who claim that Lincoln and Karl Marx carried on a correspondence. I don't necessarily believe that. But it would not be unlikely that Lincoln might have read 
some of Marx's journalism and maybe even more, maybe read the Communist Manifesto. I can tell you that in Lincoln's entourage, the men whom he interacted with regularly and inside of the Republican Party, there were those who would have been well-versed with that kind of radicalism and had that kind of influence on Lincoln himself. But I, I have yet to see an actual correspondence between Lincoln and Marx. But what is clear, it's not that he was a socialist, he was a social democrat. And he believed that government had to play a significant role in liberating labor from being locked into capitalist relationship. And the point is, as he understood it, capital is created by labor, which is a fundamentally Marxist notion. Labor creates value. But I see nothing in Lincoln specifically that would say that he was a socialist in the sense of taking possession of capitalist property and redistributing it in some form, either collectively or cooperatively to working people. But given his role in signing the Land Grant Act, I did not mention the further act that he signed in 1862, now that we're entering 1862. And that was the Homestead Act, where once again, federal lands were to be distributed. The Midwest and the Plains were being laid out for the purpose of distributing them to families in the East, working class families, immigrant families to become family farmers. Now, I'm very well aware of the tragic contradiction in all of that, of course. These were lands that had been taken from Native Americans, but he's operating in terms of the lands that are afforded him as president, as federal lands, and he's, he's doing so. Later, by the way, all too often, even the farmers themselves were losing their lands to the railroads that were carving up vast empires of land across the country. So 1862, the war is well underway. The greatest speech, I think we can jump ahead to that. The greatest speech, to my mind, of Lincoln's presidency, of his whole political career, is the Gettysburg Address. There are many people who disagree with me. They believe his inaugural speech in 1865, the second inaugural address, is his greatest. It, it is a great speech. And I'm not going to argue against that. But I think that when we think about the great texts of American history, that one would have to say common sense, declaration of independence, what to the slave is the 4th of July, the declaration of sentiments, which we have out of order here. And I think the Gettysburg dress is, it. in essence, it's almost a new founding document. Maybe it's the last of the founding documents, because this is the moment where the war still has some ways to go, but slavery is doomed. And soon we will see there'll be the 13th Amendment to end slavery. There'll be the 14th Amendment. And then, of course, the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed African-American men the right to vote, although it didn't guarantee it strongly enough, as we know. It afforded the right, but didn't fully guarantee it. But this Gettysburg Address, this speech, I can't tell you I've ever memorized it. I used to tell my students that anyone who wants to memorize it, I would give them an A for the whole semester. And I, oddly enough, no one took me up on it. I don't think they did. They should have. It's memorable and I think memorizable, but I confess I've not done it. Well, Harvey, I have to admit, I have written this speech many times. It was punishment in middle school, and I, I did act out a few times, Professor K. I must admit, I'm sorry. Well, let's put it this way. Your teacher could have really punished you and made you write out one of his longer speeches. <laughs> I lucked out. It's true. I lucked out. How about this? This is such a great speech, though we've not memorized it. How about if we split it? Let's do it. The Gettysburg Address is delivered in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, like the dedication of the cemetery, the thousands of Union soldiers who died there and were being buried there. The man who was actually invited to speak to give the major address was Edward Everett, a great orator of his day. 
And I got to tell you, his speech is forgotten. He gave a speech which basically retold world history, and it took more than two hours to deliver it. Lincoln, everyone knew would be there and was invited, obviously expected to be there. And there's a myth, there's a legend that he wrote the speech on the train from D.C. to Pennsylvania. That's not true. He spent weeks working through this speech, how to make it just right. And it was well worth the effort because this is a speech of what, a couple hundred words or a few hundred words, a speech that probably t- would take two minutes. And this is a speech that even Everett knew was probably the speech of the day. And there were those who didn't like the speech, but this speech is absolutely phenomenal and phenomenal for this reason. In this short speech, he literally is redeclaring American independence, the refoundation in many ways of the United States. And he's positioning, this is the important thing, he positions the declaration, reminding Americans it's the declaration is the founding document. This is that document that over and over again, the text that over and over again, he returns to for inspiration and empowerment as he pursues a political career committed to saving the United States. I mean, think about where he begins the speech. He begins the speech four score and seven years ago. July 1776 is what he's referring to. Our fathers brought forth, notice his birthing, brought forth on this continent, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now notice, he didn't claim that equality prevailed at that moment. What he said is a nation dedicated to that proposition. And thus, as the speech continues, we hear the imperative, or if you like, the refounding in that moment. Take it away. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will have little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, We take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. It's interesting. He says that they'll not remember what we say here, of course. If you hear four score and seven years ago, your mind goes to Gettysburg. And then everyone remembers everyone remembers, government of the people, that's the fundamental civic and political democracy, by the people, decidedly political democracy, for the people, that's that social democratic push, shall not perish from the earth. November 19, 1863. Now, again, we could go on to some other great speeches, but I think that that speech is the greatest speech he gave, and also one of the greatest in American history. We're talking various texts. To my mind, The two greatest speeches in American history are probably the Gettysburg Address and perhaps FDR's speech, The Four Freedoms. But I think the Gettysburg is 
the greatest. So the whole reason why Professor K and myself, we decided to take back America once a week, reclaim this radical history weekly, is because we wanted to update these ideals, these principles for life in the 21st century. When I'm hearing the Gettysburg Address, I'm hearing this through line of the principles of the freedom that we can find from the Declaration, right? And again, as we update this for today, you know, you said something earlier that I still just cannot move on from. Joe Biden today should be using what he hears from Lincoln as he tries to build back better. You said we could name the Build Back Better plan Lincoln's Social Democratic plan, and maybe he could get some Republican votes that way, you know? But I'm going to go back so people can hear the words again if I'm going to talk about it. He says, the legitimate object of government is to do for the people what needs to be done, but which they cannot by individual effort do it all or do so well for themselves. I want to remind you that in common sense, Payne makes a similar argument. He says people have beyond civilization. They'll be able to do certain things for themselves, but then they'll get to that point which requires cooperation, a social effort. And that's why we create government to do for us together what we cannot do for ourselves alone. And that's what Lincoln is saying. And then he says, there are many such things. He's giving examples. Some of them exist independently of the injustice in the world. And what he means by that is, yes, government must first and foremost guarantee our security versus those who would try to overwhelm us. But also because we're not all saints, they have to protect us against those who would do evil to to us within our own communities, unfortunately. But he's saying the role of government is grander than that as well. And he says, making and maintaining roads, bridges, and the like. This is that American system that government has a role to encourage and enable economic growth. For that matter, commerce, transportation, people should be able to communicate, should be able to visit each other, should be able to travel, to see their own country. And then he goes on, providing for the helpless, young, and afflicted. That is, Government has a role in enabling security to be not only security against enemies, but security against the worst afflictions of life, to help the young and the afflicted, right, who can't take care of themselves. Parents may have passed. Diseases may have struck. Resources aren't available. That's where government come in. And then he says, common schools, that's the term in the 19th century for what we call public schools. This is the role of government. That is a very radical argument, by the way. The public schools, America set an example to the world, a social democratic example. And then he says, and disposing of deceased men's properties. What he means by that, of course, is that regulating these kinds of things. Government has a role to protect, to secure, and to enable. Why to enable and to invest in young people? Well, it should be obvious because the future is in young people's advancement. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm in my 70s now. I'll be 72 in 10 days. And frankly, I mean, I take hope in the future by looking at young people, not simply by the fact that they'll take care of me as I get even older, <laughs> but also because indeed we need each other. And government affords us that connection from generation to generation and across distances. And those who can't see the role of government in promoting economic growth and development in basically making sure that we are secured not only against enemies, but also against the difficulties of old age, the troubles of growing up, of making sure that we can all eat, that we all have a place to sleep and to live. I can't imagine that there's any other way of looking at the words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness than to also see them as Lincoln put it in terms of the legitimate object of government is to do for people what needs to be done. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ask people, what does it take to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Requires certain kinds of basic needs being addressed, 
And quite often we have to join together and act collectively and cooperatively by way of government to make sure all of that is available. You know, I can tell you that the Democrats have a really, really hard time ever selling things because they have lacked imagination for decades. So, for example, the infrastructure plan and the even larger infrastructure, social infrastructure plan, they should have called it the Lincoln plan. Though I think the FDR plan would have worked even more effectively given the scale of what we're talking about. But either way, the Lincoln plan, the FDR plan, call it what you'd like, but give it a historical grounding. Americans know what Lincoln was about. They know what FDR was about. You don't have to call it the Biden plan. So we've we've devoted two sessions to Abraham Lincoln. Hell, we could have devoted three, four, five sessions to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe someday we will. Okay, maybe someday we will. But here's the thing. We're going to move on beyond Lincoln, and we're going to probably move on to Susan B. Anthony, if you like, the woman of women's suffrage. She's the champion of women's suffrage. Now, we've already talked about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was, in fact, if you like, the founder of the women's suffrage movement. But it's Anthony who takes it on the road. She's not there in 1848, Anthony, at the Declaration of Sentiments drafting in Seneca Falls. But she becomes one of those, in quotes, feminists. Now, the speech that we'll look at will be her speech defending herself after she has, in quotes, illegally voted in New York State. And we'll try to bring Kitty in on this one, I hope. Okay, so it'll be the three of us. That works for me, Professor K. My friend, my brother. This is just a treat. Taking back America. I've never had so much fun taking back America. (laughs) Let's hope we win. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope we win. Professor K, where can these folks find you? Give them your handles. RVJK on Twitter. Always happy to welcome people. And if they if they want to support my cause, they should root for the Green Bay Packers. No offense to your Kansas City Chiefs. Do you got anything coming out? Any books to promote or plug? This winter or early spring, my very first book, The British Marxist Historians, which was published in 1984, the winter of 84, 85, and then came out in a second edition in 1995, 96. This winter will come out in a third edition. I I wrote a new preface for it with zero books and uh, came out in a second Spanish translation this past year. If I leave the United States, that's the book I'm known for, the the British Marxist historians. Here in this country, I think probably better known for Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. At least that's what I think. Well, my brother, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Professor K, Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, my brother, until next week. You bet. Next week. See you soon. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.